This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L.K. This episode is another session from those hosted by DSA at the Socialism 2022 conference in September in Chicago. Thanks again to Haymarket Books for generously helping us out with the recordings. You can hear many other sessions from the Socialism Conference in podcast form at socialismconference.org. The name of this session is The Crisis of American Politics, Socialists, and Liberal Democracy. We cannot depend on the liberals to defend liberal democracy. How then should we as democratic socialists spearhead the fight for democracy and worker power? This session will be covered in two episodes. This episode is part one. The session was hosted by Griffin Mahone, an at-large DSA member in Virginia. He is on the National Political Education Committee and was recently the editor for the YDSA publication, The Activist. The panelists are Paul Heideman and Sanjeev Gupta. You may recognize Sanjeev Gupta from our What is Capitalism series. Sanjeev is a member of the River Valley DSA chapter in Western Massachusetts and is a sociologist at Amherst College. I personally discovered Sanjeev first from his excellent podcast, Socialism in the Time of Corona. You'll find the link in the show notes. Paul Heidemann is a writer and high school teacher in New York City. He is editor of Class Struggle and the Color Line, and his work has appeared in Jacobin, Dissent, and in these times. He is currently working on a history of the modern Republican Party. There's a link to his article behind the Republican Party crack-up in Catalyst in the show notes. Before we get started, the name of the episode makes reference to liberal democracy. This may be a term that you've heard before, but you may not be aware of the distinction between liberal democracy and just democracy, or what socialists often say is like, actual democracy or real democracy. We differentiate socialism from liberalism. What liberals call democracy is actually only a limited form of democracy. True democracy is more than freedom of speech, being innocent until proven guilty, and the right to vote for your representatives. True democracy would expand democracy to the workplace and the economy, True democracy would presume everyone has access to health, justice, and education so their basic needs are met and they have the capacity to flourish. Remember, the ideas expressed on this podcast are not intended to reflect the entirety of DSA members. Instead, our hope is to present a variety of socialist perspectives. The first voice you're going to hear is Griffin. He will provide the prompt from which Sanjeev and Paul will respond. I should mention that this was recorded before the midterm election, but I think that you'll find that while he did not predict the future, much of Paul Heidemann's analysis was spot on. Why liberal democracy is important, either in these speakers' opinions or maybe the opinions of other socialists, what constitutes liberal democracy, and these are very broad questions, whether and why the events of January 6th are a big deal, what they mean about the direction of the Republican Party and what is happening with politics in the United States. So Sanjeev is going to go first. 
You can count on the fingers of one hand the people who made Biden's inauguration possible. Jeff Bezos, Tim Cook, Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, the CEOs of Amazon, Apple, Twitter, and Facebook, respectively, who shut Trump and a bunch of other folks from social media, shut them out. And Mark Milley, chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. In other words, the electoral outcome was guaranteed by big tech and the US military. And 25,000 disciplined soldiers, more than the number of US soldiers in Afghanistan that day, who chose to follow their orders. This was not a peaceful transition of power. It was the first intervention of the US military into domestic electoral politics since Reconstruction. Now, note who's not on this list. No socialist organizations. No coalition of progressive or left organizations broadly defined. I think it's fair to say that we socialists, most of us, didn't take the threat of a coup seriously and probably wouldn't have known what to do if one had occurred. We were then, and we remain today, ideologically and organizationally unprepared for a threat to liberal democracy on this scale. So I think this is what should trouble all of us, that it took a handful of the most powerful people in the country, all unelected, plus 25,000 heavily armed troops. If you saw pictures of DC on that day, including the helicopters and snipers, to guarantee the legitimate outcome of the presidential election. In other words, by the least reliable guarantors of democracy, not by the threat of a mass uprising or the threat of an organized progressive or socialist response. So here I'd like to outline three implications of these events for socialists in the US. And these are things that I'm pretty sure of, or I've convinced myself of. One, liberal democracy is fundamental to our work as socialists, and we should be at the forefront of defending it. Two, far-right groups who are willing to attack it violently are growing in power and organization. And three, we need to recognize the Republican Party as the greatest institutional threat to democracy in the US, and therefore to our own work. I'll expand on each of these for a little bit, and then end with something that I'm really very confused about or not sure of at all, which is actually the most important reason we're all here, is what all this means specifically for the political work of socialists in the US, especially my organization, the Democratic Socialists of America. All right, so one, why should we as socialists and progressives care about liberal democracy? After all, we're used to calling it bourgeois democracy because that's what it is. We're used to criticizing it for the fundamental limits it places on our freedom, for its focus, especially in the US, on the circus of electoral politics and voting. And all of these critiques are correct, and we need to keep making them even as we, as I'm arguing here, need to be at the forefront of defending it. The most basic reason we need to defend it is that liberal democracy, liberal, is a misnomer. We don't have it because the liberals or bourgeoisie got it for us. We have it because the masses of people, often organized by left, progressive, socialist, communist groups, have fought for it and defended it pretty much from its start. It's also a misnomer because we cannot rely on the liberals and bourgeoisie to defend it consistently. Whatever its limits, we have it in the first place because of mass struggle 
and the organizing role of left and socialist organizations. And the reason we fought for it is that we need it to do our political work. We need a free press. We need freedom of movement and of assembly. We don't need flight cancellations, but we do need the freedom to get here to a place like this. Um, we need Haymarket publishers to do its work without threat of you know, someone entering with guns uh, into, into the lobby there. We want to be able to do all of this without the fear of bodily harm or imprisonment. And yes, some of us face that already routinely, and I don't mean to minimize that, rather to say that this threat can be much worse if it becomes generalized. I got a taste of this when I was in India a few weeks ago. Uh, India still enjoys being uh, described as the world's largest democracy, yet people are routinely persecuted for their religion, journalists imprisoned, beaten up, sometimes killed, community organizations, NGOs, civil rights organizations, union leaders routinely threatened. Here's my favorite one. The ruling party recently tried to issue a 50-page document prohibiting some words from being used in parliamentary debate. Which words, you might ask? Words used by opposition parties to describe the ruling party. I find this particularly hilarious, not because of you know, the content, but I, I can't come up with a 50-page like, list of words, <laughs> I mean, of any sort. I mean, there's, you know, there's, okay. The Supreme Court in India, educational institutions, the mainstream media are increasingly under the thrall of the ruling party. I don't want to overstate the threat uh, to liberal democracy in India or the US. It actually remains really robust and sometimes effective opposition, not least because of the conflict between state governments and the central government in both cases. And in the US, I think much of this would have survived a coup. But the point is that at certain times, right-wing ruling parties can make things much harder and much more dangerous for us. So that brings me to the second point, that we're in a political period where the threat to liberal democracy is not abstract. We should understand it in the most basic terms as a substantial increase in the threat of bodily harm and property damage to us, to left, progressive, and socialist organizers and activists, especially those of us who are not white. Tragically, this panel conflicts with the other one on black socialist organizing. The far right in the US now is more dangerous now on three counts than it has been in decades. Its capacity for organized violence, its embodiment of white supremacy and anti-Semitism, and its growing institutionalization in the Republican Party. And that brings me to the last related point. Socialists, and I think DSA in particular, needs to be clear about the distinctive radical threat posed by the Republican Party to liberal democracy in the US and therefore to our work as socialists. Now, this is hard for us because we are more comfortable focusing on our near enemy, the Democratic Party. But we need to face this uncomfortable, I think, truth that today's GOP is not just the worst of our two parties. It's now open drive to deny basic voting rights on the basis of race by itself makes it an enemy of the most rudimentary democracy in the US. And several GOP leaders condone or countenance far-right violence 
to a degree not seen since the civil rights period. And some of you look like uh, you may have experienced some of that. And so we'd love to hear from you uh, later. What should we do? And this is the piece I have the least clarity on, and I'm actually looking forward to the feedback and conversations here. What I can say vaguely is that we need a mass movement in support of basic liberal, yes, bourgeois democracy in the U.S., one that will dramatically raise the political costs for the Republican Party and the far right for flouting it. And as socialists, leftists, labor organizers, we have to play a key role in organizing such a mass movement as we have historically. Now, I'm fuzzy on exactly what that implies for our political work. The choices are dizzying and each one of them is fraught with all kinds of, you know, sort of peril. So I'm fuzzy about that, but I do know this. We cannot trust the liberals to protect liberal democracy. So we need to do some careful analysis to figure out how serious the threat is without crying wolf, learning from history without making the usual comparisons to the Nazis or this or that. We need to appreciate the specific dangers posed by the GOP while remaining clear on our differences with the Democratic Party. For DSA, assessing the threat of the far right at the chapter, regional, and state levels would not merely be an analytical exercise. It would be an organizational activity. It would strengthen our capacity and resolve to face whatever is coming. And I'll depart from the tradition of the usual quotes from either Marx, Lenin, and so on, and with a quote from Shakespeare instead, something wicked is coming this way. Okay, um, so I agree with everything Sanjeev said, and I just want you to keep that in mind uh, as I make my argument as well, that I, I see my argument as one that is in, in accord with his, not in opposition to it. So my argument is that the GOP is weak and disorganized. And weak and disorganized is not the same thing as benign or not dangerous particularly because the American political system with all of its institutions of minoritarian rule makes it so that even a party that is incapable of winning a majority of American voters can rule, can stop progress, can do all kinds of things, right? So when I say they're weak and disorganized, I'm not saying we don't have to worry about those guys. Rather, I'm talking about their internal coherence and their direction or lack thereof. And I think this is important because their weakness creates opportunities for the left. And I think if our focus is just that the right is getting bigger and bigger and more powerful and more powerful, we miss the opportunities for victories for us, which are actually one of the best ways of making the right even weaker. So, so that's kind of the, the political drive of my talk, is that I want us to recognize the opportunities that exist right now. Um, I think the left needs to be winning victories and claiming victories, building the confidence of uh, American workers more generally that the government can actually do things that will help you, right? Um, which is not a, a experience that American workers often have, rather than maintaining an all-consuming fixation on combating the right. And again, I'm saying this in agreement with what Sanjeev is saying. So, 
to go through the sources of geo or the, the manifestations, let's say, of GOP weakness today, the midterms that are coming up should be an easy layup for the Republican Party, right? There's a kind of what political scientists call a thermostatic effect in midterm elections where the party that is in power usually loses seats, right? If you didn't know anything about the economy, anything about the president in question, but you're asked to bet on like what should happen in a midterm election of a first-term president, you bet the, the president's party is going to lose seats. And the Democrats have incredibly thin majorities in both the Senate and the House, right? So the task of taking those back from, if you know, again, if you didn't know anything about the situation, you'd say, this is a very easy situation for the Republicans to come back like 2010 or 1994 and come back with very strong majorities to completely hobble the second congressional term of the Biden administration. Now, when you add on some of the circumstances of American politics to that, you, you get an even stronger sense this should be a really easy election for the Republicans. Biden is quite unpopular, right? His, his uh, approval level is underwater. Most people think the country is headed in the wrong direction. And all of this, right? If you're looking at all of this, you're, you're going to predict a wipeout for the Democrats, right? You're going to predict a 2010-level wipeout that just completely destroys uh, the Democratic congressional presence. And yet, that is not what's forecast. You know, right now, now, election forecasting is, of course, a, you know, a tricky business. But right now, it looks quite likely that the Democrats will hold on to the Senate. And it's possible, maybe, that they'll win the House, right? That's, that's more uncertain, which is kind of staggering given kind of everything I've just said, right, that that's where things are at. And it's evidence, I think, of the GOP's weakness because the main reason that the Democrats are looking at keeping the Senate is because the GOP picked absolutely ridiculous candidates in many of the key races, right? There's Herschel Walker in uh, Georgia, right? Um, you know, People have an idea of who he is, right? Uh, there's Blake Masters in Arizona, who's a little Peter Thiel troll, um, who, you know, just scrubbed his page, uh, his website of all mention of abortion, basically, after having uh, stuff about, we need to stop killing babies, right? That was like what his page said. Now, you know, he's totally removed that. And in fact, Peter Thiel is refusing to throw more money into Arizona after him. Then you have Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, all right? And then you have Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who's an incumbent senator, but is looking like he'll probably lose to Mandela Barnes. Um, my, my family's from Wisconsin, and my mom said, Ron Johnson's like a turtle on a post. If you see a turtle on a post, you know someone else put it there, right? Um, so, <laughs> good, good line, mom, good line. Um, you know, because Republican primaries consistently threw up these absolutely terrible candidates, the party is in really bad shape for what would otherwise be very winnable races. If you just had a bunch of like Mitch McConnell clones running in these races, just based on the fundamentals, you'd probably predict those would be winning, but that's not what's happening here. And there's massive disarray between Rick Scott, who's in charge of the Senate campaign for the Republicans and the rest of the party, right? People are now really upset, the Republicans are really upset that this uh, election isn't looking like a layup for them. And so a lot of the blame is coming on Rick Scott. Uh, McConnell recently said, you know, these candidates are trash. And Rick Scott said, hey, don't talk about Dr. Oz like that. He is, quote, the best healthcare talk show host in the world. Um, <laughs> high praise, right? So this is what's happening internally in the Republican Party right now. The Senate candidates have really screwed things up for them. On a broader political level as well, you see this same kind of disarray. The party has no idea what to do about abortion. 
right? The overturning of Roe, the Dobbs decision, has put the party in a terrible position. You know, the the phrase, the dog caught the car, has been repeated a lot. That's clearly what's happened. Um, People probably saw the um, in South Carolina, the the truly draconian bill just failed. There was the referendum in Kansas, right? The, The party is being forced to back off on this. And so, for example, like Blake Masters, like I said before, has changed his tune considerably. He just cut an ad where he's like, I'm for common sense abortion restrictions like they have in Western Europe. Now, do you think like the GOP base of lunatic pro-lifers hears that and is like, I'm excited to go out and vote for this guy? No, not in the slightest, right? So the position of the party is that the mobilizing force uh, that has powered them for so long is one that they have to completely turn their back on now in a lot of places to maintain any kind of electoral viability. And you see the same thing around inflation. I mean, when inflation was quite high in you know, May, June, July, that kind of thing, If you asked any Republican politician, what's your guys' plan for what to do about inflation? You know, you're talking about Biden inflation, the little stickers that go on the gas pumps, right? They want to make a big deal out of it. They had absolutely no plan for what to do about it. It wasn't like the late 1970s when inflation was also a problem and corporate opinion in the United States was like, we need to hike unemployment up and that'll push inflation down, right? And the Republican Party were like, yes, squeeze workers, keep squeezing them, right? That's not what the Republicans were calling for. They had no plan on what to do about inflation. They were just hoping that the high inflation would damage Biden enough. But so there's no political direction to the party right now. And in a large part, I think this is a consequence of Donald Trump, right? Trumpism made the party weaker in a number of respects. The first, and I think most underappreciated, is that Donald Trump won the 2016 election by being a moderate on issues of entitlements, particularly Medicare and Social Security. Unlike virtually every other Republican, including Paul Ryan, right, um, all of the Republican leaders of the past 30 years have run on cutting entitlements in one way or another. Trump said, no, 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 we are not going to touch those. And there's a lot of evidence that this was really important to his appeal um, and in putting together enough voters in key states like Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, in order to win in 2016. Now, this puts the Republican Party in a really bad place because they are a bunch of austerity psychos. That's what their funders want. That's what their instincts are. But they're, you know, their only president since 2008 is one who got there by explicitly not running on those things. So that puts the party in a tough place. Do they go with kind of GOP populism, which, of course, we all know is hollow, right? Trump ran on, like, protecting entitlements. And then what was the only thing he accomplished? Massive tax cut to the rich that puts pressure on entitlements, right? But at the same time, if you can't campaign on cutting entitlements, it puts the party in a very awkward spot. So Trump's success did not kind of pave a way for future uh, Republicans. It actually made the road narrower by highlighting the gulf that exists between their own political positions and those of the people that they need to elect them in a general election. Second, his cult of personality hollowed out the party politically precisely because Trump obviously doesn't have any political positions, right? Like, what does he believe on something? I mean, that's just an irrelevant question, right? Like, what he believes. You know, he does whatever seems like it'll be politically advantageous. And and the fact that the party had to orient itself around that for four years contributed to its political directionlessness today, right? There was there was no one kind of laying out, like, we're the Republican Party, this is what we believe, right? Instead, it was, we believe whatever Donald Trump says today. And, and that does not put the party in a good position for reproducing political leadership, for being able to, again, chart a course, for being able to achieve any kind of hegemony. 
Finally, among liberals in particular, I mean, American liberals are um, such whipped dogs, you know, like uh, American liberals are, you know, there's a Trotsky quote about what the liberal says, uh, right? Uh, that, that people may, that when the, when the liberals beat me, he says, thank God I wasn't killed. Um, and then that, that kind of sense of being under siege in American liberalism is so deeply ingrained that you get these kind of uh, arguments that are like, well, everything bad that happens to Donald Trump only makes him stronger, which I think is not true. Like, losing the election did not make him stronger, right? January 6th did not make him stronger. It made, even as it revealed just how dangerous his movement is, it clearly, being banned from social media and that kind of stuff, clearly made him weaker. And I think the same thing is true of the Mar-a-Lago raid that's going on right now, all of that kind of stuff. All of this stuff damages the Republican Party precisely because it has tied itself so thoroughly to his personality that when when bad things happen to him, they happen to the party as a whole, and bad things, fortunately, have not stopped happening to Donald Trump for a few years. This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L.K. I'd like to thank Sean Larson from Haymarket Books, Griffin Mahone for hosting this session, Sanjeev Gupta for contributing to sound engineering and other technical support, Casey Sticker as a key member of our tiny team for sound engineering, theme music, and editing. If you're a member of DSA, please share this podcast with your local chapter. Class is intended to be a resource for chapters and members to articulate, apply, and share socialist theory with DSA and the wider working class. Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Remember to watch for part two of The Crisis of American Politics, Socialists, and Liberal Democracy.